Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Welcome back, guys. Thank you for waiting for us and thank you for joining us once again this week. We had quite a break, didn't we, of about three or four weeks over Christmas. So um, it's been lovely and we're refreshed and we're ready to come back for 2023. So here we are. Yeah, I was talking to one of our listeners, William, and I was saying we planned the time off because of Christmas and that sort of thing. But actually, we've both been or our families have been so ill for the last month and a half that it was actually really necessary as well. So I'm glad that we had this little break. Yeah, it's um, it, it was needed. Um, yeah, I, th- I think we're both a lot better. So, um, so yeah, we've got an absolute belter of a case to kick off 2023. It's the murder of Meredith Kircher. And we're going to do it over two parts because there's so much to cover off in this, isn't there, Bethan? Um, yeah, that so it's you the get only a two-parter way. as our little... Happy New Year, welcome back. And we're, we're going to release them on consecutive days, so you don't have to wait a week for part two, you've just got to wait until tomorrow if you're listening to part one on the day of release. So before we kick off, let's take a moment to thank our beautiful Patreon supporters, especially our newest supporters. Do you want to do the honours, Bethan? Oh, go on then. Thank you so much to Lou A, Chloe Clapp, Dawn Louise Campbell, Hannah Farmery, Zoe Faulkner and Rianne Murrah. Thank you to all of you. If you want to join these guys, all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. In late 2007, the eyes of the world were drawn to the beautiful Italian city of Perugia following the gruesome murder of a British foreign exchange student. The twisted tale of violence, murder, lies and sex games gone wrong that emerged from the city's picturesque facade of steep mountain streets and centuries-old buildings would see the entire world gripped. This barbaric murder would go on to receive mass media coverage and as this horrific, strange and ultimately sad story unfolded in the decade that followed, it only seemed to become more bizarre, more disturbing and more mysterious. When the dust finally settled in 2015, we were left with a hotly debated narrative that had more bizarre twists and turns than the medieval streets of Perugia itself. Meredith Susanna Cara Kircher was born on the 28th of December in 1985 in Southwark and grew up in Colston, a suburb in the southern outer reaches of London. She was the youngest of four children with brothers John and Lyle and a sister called Stephanie. Affectionately known to her friends and family as Mez, Meredith attended the Old Palace School in Croydon and was described as a model pupil as well as a sweet-natured, thoughtful and happy child. From a young age, Meredith was fascinated by the language and culture of Italy and in her early teens she got the chance to visit the country as part of a school exchange trip. This trip really was life-affirming for Meredith, and she eagerly returned to the country at the age of 15 to spend her summer vacation with a local family in Sessa Aronca, a quaint and beautiful little town in southern Italy, and this was to really immerse herself in Italian culture and the language, and to really learn Italian. That's so cool. I love that because I think a lot of people see their, like, you know, when you do those like um, school exchange trips and stuff, a lot of people just see it as like a bit of fun, but she's really kind of gone, wow, I want to take this the next step further. I want to go out of my way to go and live with the family and really learn. And I just think that's wonderful. I don't, I don't think I'd have the bollocks to have done that at 25, let alone 15. So yeah, that's incredible. It's crazy. Yeah. 
After graduating from secondary school with exceptional grades, Meredith went on to study European politics and Italian at the University of Leeds. To support herself, she worked as a barmaid and a tour guide, and she also made a few appearances as an extra on TV, her most notable of which was her cameo appearance in the music video of Christian Leontiu's song, Some Say, in 2004. I've never heard of him, but... No, um, I don't know no. that song, I'm afraid. You don't so get don't, me singing this time, sorry. No, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> Meredith... Meredith had big aspirations to work for the European Union as a representative or as a journalist. However, it was her everlasting love of Italy, which in October 2007 drove her to enrol at the University of Perugia, where she planned to study modern history, political theory and the history of cinema, which sounds fascinating. I didn't know that you could study that. Perugia is a small Italian city and the capital of the Umbria region. With its pristine medieval centre and large international student population, Perugia is Umbria's largest and most cosmopolitan city. Within its historical centre, little has changed in more than 400 years. The town offers its visitors a unique kind of charm with a helter-skelter of cobbled alleys, arched stairways and piazzas, all framed by solemn churches and magnificent Gothic mansions. Reminders of its lively and often bloody past are everywhere, from ancient arches and medieval basilicas to Renaissance frescoes by the likes of Perugino and Raphael. I literally have no idea what I've just said there, but it sounds (laughs) delightful, doesn't it? See, I think it just sounds incredible. It sounds like a classic Italian city. It really sounds amazing because where my grandparents live in France, it's kind of, it sounds similar to that. Like it's, um, it's near to Bordeaux and you can see like where the Bordeaux tapestry was and that sort of thing and like the streets are all cobbly and it just sounds really similar although not as gothic like that bit of France isn't like that but Mm. yeah I just love it I think that's that's it actually I think it is quite gothic in nature so there's almost this haunting atmosphere around the city Meredith arrived in Perugia in mid-October and moved into Via della Pagola 7, which was an old cottage that had been modified into a multi-storey student house. So I think it had been split into different apartments and each floor was its own apartment, if that makes sense. It's interesting how um, in Italian the number seven's also seven, Mark. Yeah, I know. It's shocking, isn't it? (laughs) I really don't know what it would be or should be. I don't know. I think it might be set it, but I don't know for sure. So I'm hoping one of our listeners might tell us or we could just google it we could just google it and actually don't give a shit um yeah (laughs) uh so the property was already occupied by two italian students so they were in the apartment above meredith's um and there were four male students in the apartment below hers via della pagola was said to be in a bad neighborhood Known for petty crime, it was frequented by drug dealers and local hoodlums who would hang around in the nearby basketball court. But none of this really bothered Meredith. True to her happy and friendly nature, she was quick to make friends and plug herself into Perugia University's social scene. Fellow students would later describe her as caring, intelligent, witty and popular. Meredith lived alone for a brief period, with the entire floor to herself, but she knew it wouldn't be long before she would be joined by a roommate. And joined she was. Within a week, a pretty, blonde-haired, self-confident and extroverted 20-year-old foreign exchange student moved in. Her name was Amanda Knox. Amanda Marie Knox was born on July the 9th in 1987 in Seattle, a mountainous city in the Pacific northwestern state of Washington in the USA. 
Amanda was the eldest child of her mother, Edda Mellis, a high school maths teacher, and her father, Kurt Knox, a wealthy vice president of a local Macy's store. Amanda also had a younger sister named Deanna. Amanda's parents got divorced when she was quite young, and her mother eventually remarried a man named Chris Mellers, who was an information technology consultant for any fact fans out there. Amanda was also described by those who knew her best as happy, dramatic, animated and extremely extroverted. She loved being the centre of attention and had an appetite for adventure and excitement, as well as a tendency to embrace risk and to really live her life in the fast lane on her own terms. See, that's like you, isn't it? Dramatic. Yeah. And loves being the centre of attention and just will drop everything and nip across the globe to go to the USA for a random weekend. Yeah, but I'd say I'm not extroverted. I'm I'm a in, an, an introvert at heart. Um, but yeah, I did kind of read this and I thought, fuck, this is a bit like me. And then when we hear later on about Amanda's behaviour uh, following the events that we're going to go on to talk about, I kind of could see me doing that, which is quite worrying. So uh, yeah, interesting. Amanda graduated from the Seattle Preparatory School in 2005 and went on to study linguistics at the University of Washington. Her teachers, professors and classmates held mostly fond memories of her, describing her as a bright and charming student who made it onto the dean's list of the university in recognition of her aptitude and academic achievements. She was also a very talented athlete, which earned her the nickname Foxy Noxy, which Amanda jovially plastered all over her MySpace profile. But that name makes no sense to me because I can't see how that's linked to her athletic prowess. No, because maybe like she was just an athletic person. So she had like a fit body. So she was like foxy because she was attractive, maybe. Kind of makes sense. Um, But this seemingly cute and affectionate nickname, which was initially bestowed upon Amanda by her inner circle with no sinister intent, would go on to haunt her in unimaginable ways. And would she would be remembered and associated with that moniker really for the worst possible reasons and she will be associated with it for the rest of her life. Like Meredith, Amanda also grew up with an inherent fascination for Italy and Italian culture. Her first visit to the country happened at the age of 15 when she and her family toured Rome, Pisa and the ruins of Pompeii along the Amalfi coast. Amanda fell instantly and deeply in love with the country and she vowed to return. To fuel her Italian dream, she worked part-time to finance an academic year to study linguistics at the University of Perugia, and she successfully secured a place there in 2007. It's understood that Amanda's mother and stepfather were deeply apprehensive of Amanda's plans to study in Italy, as they felt that she was too young, too naive, too wild in nature to venture out on her own and be responsible for her own safety, and I think they were right to have those concerns. Undeterred by her parents' fears, Amanda departed for Italy, of course she did, and arrived in Perugia Mm -hmm. in late October 2007. With the help of the university, she found accommodation at Via della Pagola 7, and of course it was here that she would meet her new housemate, Meredith Kircher. Amanda and Meredith immediately hit it off, and despite their polar opposing personality types, they formed a close friendship based on their shared love of Italian culture and linguistics. Their mutual friends would later reflect that the pair got on very well and that there was never any obvious tension or hostility between them. They also commented that Amanda and Meredith's friendship was a unique one because the two girls were so dramatically different in nature. 
Amanda was an extroverted hothead, a notorious party bitch, whereas Meredith was far more reserved, introverted, thoughtful and sober. <laughs> I love your description sometimes, Mark. You do crack me <laughs> I have <up>. to. <laughs> but she was. She was just, yeah, they were very, very different in nature. But yeah. I kind of thought, I did think about this. And we've all, well, I don't have many friends, but we've all got friends that are the complete opposite to us. And sometimes they're your best friends because... I don't know, you just, um, you need that outlet because you don't see it in yourself. So you need to seek it elsewhere. You might be the crazy one. you need a bit of balance in your yeah, life. Yeah, that's it. You might be the crazy one and you need someone who's a bit chilled to balance you out. So so I, I kind of got it and I thought, yeah, I bet they were very close very quickly. I don't think that would have continued. I think there would have been possibly a spectacular falling out at some point um, and they wouldn't have carried on living together. I don't know. Who knows? We'll never know. Like Meredith, Amanda was also quick to make friends of her own and became heavily involved in Perugia's social scene. However, she also had to make ends meet financially, so she got herself a job as a bartender at a bar called La Chic, which was a popular student hangout that was owned by a Congolese-Italian man named Patrick Lumumba. Within days of arriving in Perugia, Amanda attended a classical music concert and it was here that she first met a shy 23-year-old computer science student named Raphael Celesito. Although handsome, Raphael was nerdy-looking and socially awkward, traits which Amanda found endearing and strangely alluring. She would later describe Raphael to her friends as like an Italian Harry Potter and we've probably all seen the pictures of him at this time in 2007, in in the years that followed, and then things go quiet, and then he's popped up again in the last few months. Have you seen a recent photo of him, Bethan? No. Shall I have a quick He's Google? had a massive fucking glow-up. He looks really fit, and he Has looked really he? geeky before. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but he looks so different. Um, so I found him on Instagram, oh. but he's got a private profile. So, But you'll see his photo on Instagram. Let's have a little look. Totally googling this. I'm going to. I'm going to have a little look now and see what we can find. Oh, he has, hasn't he? Crikey. Yeah. Because I wasn't a fan of his look back then. That wasn't my kind of... No. I mean, he's still not really my type, I'll be honest with you, but yeah. He looks great, though. Um, anyway, mm, um, play to him. how shallow can we get? Uh, so there was an immediate, <laughs> incredibly. incredibly is the answer to that. There was an e- immediate physical attraction between the pair and they exchanged numbers at this classical music concert, which sounds really fucking boring. The following night. Sounds lovely. No, well, I suppose. <laughs> the following night, Raphael visited Amanda at La Chic, uh, where she was working, and after she finished a shift, the pair sat and drank together, setting their brief but intense sexual relationship in motion. The son of a successful urologist, Raphael Celesito was born on the 26th of March in 1984 in the southern Italian city of Giovinazzo, and he was on the verge of completing a computer science degree at Perugia University, which of course it was that kind of degree. Speaking later to the media, Raphael reflected on his brief but eventful fling with Amanda Knox. He said, It was a really nice relationship. In that period, she was much more at my apartment than I was in hers. It was an intense story. It was the start. It was crazy. Over the next few days, Amanda and Raphael were understood to be completely besotted with one another and spent every spare moment they had together. They spent a lot of time at Raphael's apartment enjoying one another, cooking, watching movies, smoking weed and sleeping together. 
Raphael later reflected that he did meet Meredith once or twice, but didn't know her that well. So obviously Amanda's living with Meredith, um, but they weren't really... But they're just not really going to her place, are they? No, For the most part at this stage of the story, life in Perugia was certainly looking up for everyone involved. Meredith was studying hard and enjoying her new life in Italy. She was making friends everywhere she went and living her best life. And Amanda and Raphael were experiencing love's young dream and also having the time of their lives in Perugia. Everything was going to plan. But of course, fate had a different destiny in store for this trio. On the 2nd of November in 2007, around midday, Amanda and Raphael arrived at Via della Pagola 7, the apartment Amanda shared with Meredith, after spending the previous night with Raphael at his place. Upon entering the house, Amanda noticed that the front door was wide open, and she was shocked to discover that someone had apparently broken in and trashed the place. Although it initially appeared that nothing in the house had been stolen, there had clearly been a major disturbance at some point during the previous night. By pure coincidence, as Amanda and Raphael were surveying the damage to the house and trying to decide what to do, two local police officers arrived at the property. The officers had with them two mobile phones which had been discovered just 500 metres away in a random woman's garden, apparently having been thrown over her fence. The police had been able to ascertain that both phones were registered to users who lived at Via della Pagola 7 and had more than likely been stolen before being abandoned. Amanda and Raphael told the officers that they had discovered the front door to the property wide open and even though nothing was missing, one single room in the house had been completely ransacked. The police officers activated some surveillance equipment and began inspecting the house. As the officers did this, Raphael, for some strange reason known only to him, got on his phone and contacted the local police in Perugia to report the crime. As he reported the break into the police operator, he somehow failed to mention that there were two police officers already at the scene, and Raphael couldn't have known at the time, but this seemingly insignificant little detail would come back to haunt him. Surely you'd mention it in passing, because fair enough, you think, do you know what, we also want to report our break-in, because they're here about the phones, and what if they don't report this, blah, blah, blah. Even from the point of view of like not wasting police time, just being to the operator, I need to report this. There are a couple of police officers here, so will they take on this crime or do we need a new incident report number? I don't know what Italian crime reporting is like, but here you'd at least ask those questions, surely. It's so weird. I know that sometimes there's almost two police forces in different countries and it's almost a bit like a couple of PCSOs turning up here and you kind of thinking oh you're shit I'm gonna get on the blower to get the real boys here but um but yeah we'll come back to this later no I know what you mean though like you could have I guess in America you'd have like the sheriff's department might have turned up but you actually want local police enforcement or something like that I don't know but here you wouldn't no unless you're mark and you've got a thing about pc no i think they're they're great (laughs) but i'm just saying some people might be thinking no i need the real people here yeah and i think as well like i i think from a true crime background would kind of feel like you know what i still need to report this because from an insurance point of view what if they say well you didn't report xyz yeah yeah 
what if so and it's a bit like but i still tell them but we we always say it don't we you can go back and analyze your actions in any significant event and then pull them apart even though you might not have had any sinister intentions it's easy with hindsight to break everything down but we will come back to that so amanda entered the house and checked all of the other rooms and most of the bedrooms in the house appeared to be intact and unaffected by the break-in She went into the bathroom and noticed a few drops of blood in the bathroom sink and a single blooded footprint on the blue bath mat. The toilet was unflushed and full of feces, which makes me want to fucking gag. Isn't that just disgusting? And psychologically, whoever did that, that there's something really um, going on there, isn't there? As a creeping sense of dread began to set in, Amanda went to Meredith's bedroom. However, she found it to be locked. She knocked the door and called out to Meredith, but there was no answer. She then attempted to call Meredith on a mobile phone to tell her there had been a break-in, but she got no response there either. Amanda would later recall how, when she realised that Meredith's door was locked and how she wasn't responding to her phone calls, she felt an immediate sense of dread and became desperately worried for her friend. Amanda conveyed her concerns to one of the officers at the scene who agreed to gain entry to the room by force. The police officer kicked open the door and made a heartbreaking discovery. Meredith's mutilated, partially clothed body was discovered on a bedroom floor in a pool of blood underneath her duvet. She had sustained several injuries, including two catastrophic knife wounds to the neck, and it was later discovered she'd been strangled. It was immediately evident that she'd been the victim of an exceptionally sadistic and sexually motivated attack. Her injuries were so brutal that her lungs were full of her own blood, indicating that she'd ultimately drowned in it. There is little doubt that her death was violent and slow. She would have died terrified and in extreme pain. And it, again, we, we've talked, we, we, we come across murders where they happen really quickly and the victim doesn't even know because it's so quick. And then we come across murders like this where it's painful and it's slow and the victim is terrified. And it just, it's so bothersome, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's just, oh, it's awful. It reminded me a little bit of the, an early episode of ours, The Iceman Killer about Harry and Nicola Fuller, which I know I've referenced before. Yeah, and how long that took before they died. Because I know Adam's just covered it on UK True Crime, and I listened to it because it's a fascinating case, even though I knew it inside out. It's always interesting to hear somebody else's take on it. Oh, yeah, definitely. And it reminded me of what happened with Nicola, and she was shot three times, managed to, she was still alive, managed to run upstairs Mm-hmm. and get into a bedroom and she attempted to then phone the emergency services and realised that she couldn't even speak because basically half of her face had been blasted off with a shotgun and then she was shot once more and, and she died from, from that shot. But up until that point, she was alive, conscious and terrified. And yeah, I think Meredith's murder was similar in nature. Additional police resources were urgently brought in at this point and Italian detectives immediately launched a murder investigation. An initial examination of Meredith's body revealed that she had been sexually assaulted. Her blood-soaked bra had been cut off using a knife and a t-shirt had been rolled up to expose her breasts. Forensic investigators noticed that the rear strap of the bra had been severed and the clasp, the part with the little hooks, was missing entirely and this will be important later. As the detectives probed the crime scene, they quickly became convinced that the murderer had staged a break-in after the attack on Meredith. 
The shards of broken glass from the smashed window were lying on top of the scattered clothes instead of underneath, and the rock that had allegedly been used to put the window through was far too big and heavy to have been thrown from the ground floor up to the first floor window. For any sane person, using a rock that big on such a small and delicate window so high up off the ground wouldn't have made any sense. Furthermore, it soon became clear that the rock in the room was not the one that had been used to smash the window anyway. The diameter of the rock was much bigger than the hole that had been left in the glass. Instead, it appeared as though the rock had been relocated after the murder had occurred. So very much staged crime scene. A line of bloodied shoe prints was found originating from Meredith's bedroom and leading to the front door of the property. In the bathroom, an obvious bloodied footprint stained the blue bath mat. Over the following four days, forensic teams examined every square inch of that property and in doing so collected more than 400 items of forensic evidence. They worked carefully, diligently and professionally, filming, photographing and documenting everything they discovered. No stone was left unturned. And I think part, I'm not saying they wouldn't have done a thorough investigation of the crime scene anyway, but I think when foreign nationals are involved in a crime like this, I think there's an extra pressure because you know you're going to have embassies of their country mm-hmm. involved. 100%. Yeah, so, so it was a really thorough examination. A pathologist from Perugia's Forensic Science Institute performed the autopsy on Meredith's body. Her non-lethal injuries consisted of 16 bruises and 7 cuts. These included several superficial cuts and bruises to the palm of her hand, which of course appeared to be defensive wounds, and further bruises were discovered on her nose, nostrils, mouth and underneath her jaw, which were deemed to be compatible with a hand being clamped over her mouth and nose. The autopsy report was reviewed by three pathologists from Perugia's Forensic Science Institute and they concluded that the injuries, including some to the genital region, were indicative of an attempt to immobilise Meredith during a sustained and brutal act of sexual violence. So that's what they're looking at, that this is a sexual attack, a sadistic attack, and these injuries have largely been sustained in order to facilitate the attack, if that makes sense. It's just like horrible the idea the the hand over yeah, there like to have that I much bruising and yeah. it, every single description of her injuries really kind of highlights that terror that she would have felt at the time yeah and we, we're going to come on to this in a moment about how many people uh, police believed would have been involved in this attack because i think already quite clearly you can sort of ascertain that this this would be too much for one person. So I think what what's really disturbing is that while somebody was grabbing her, her jaw in that way and covering her mouth and and kind of probably almost um, suffocating her, somebody else mm-hmm. was assaulting her as well. At least one other person. Mm-hmm. Meredith's official cause of death was the second of the two deep stab wounds to her neck, which fatally severed her thyroid artery. She had sustained upwards of 40 wounds in a wide variety of locations all over her body. And we'll come on to this now. The pathologists believed that such a high number of injuries spread out across such a wide area couldn't have been inflicted by just one person. And they urged the lead detectives to then consider the possibility that Meredith had been attacked by two, possibly three assailants. And this theory was then given further credence when it was discovered that the two fatal knife wounds to her neck appeared to have been caused by two separate knives which is very interesting speaking later to the media the lead pathologist said 
One person could not, all at the same time, hold Meredith still and hold down a hands because there are very few defensive wounds, inflict those wounds with a smaller knife and then give her the fatal blow with a larger knife. It's impossible. Not even Superman could do it. I feel like if this was a case with a very small child or um, something like that or somebody who is, you know, three or four times the size of their victim, potentially, but this is a grown adult woman... Yeah. Just a normal sized grown adult woman. So yeah, yeah. It, it you can completely understand that they would be able to come to that conclusion. Police in Perugia launched a murder investigation which was headed up by a highly experienced lead prosecutor and criminal investigator named Giuliani Magnini, who arrived at the crime scene within two hours of Meredith's body being discovered. Giuliano would later comment to the media that this was the saddest crime scene he'd come across in his twenty five year career. Which I know this is like stating the fucking obvious, but it just makes me so sad um, for all involved, including the detectives that came across this scene, because it would have just been a scene of, of carnage. There would have been blood everywhere in that bedroom and the wounds. It can to be easy to forget that they would have suffered something themselves. Yeah. It, it can be easy to forget that. You just think of them doing their job. And I think when we talked to Colin Sutton in Book Club, and he talked about he talked about a lot of his career and he talked about how he was able to mm-hmm. very much separate work and home and he, he wouldn't ever really bring stuff home. But there were occasions when he couldn't help it. And yeah, I think even for the most hardened detective, it would be very difficult to to try and forget this. I think it's gonna live with them for the rest of their days. Do you remember the case where um the guy had kept a group of young nurses in their home um overnight and had kind of like been raping and attacking them through the night and when the police arrived they had to go outside you know one of them was being sick yeah. and stuff like that yeah and they were saying you know we've we've done so much we've done horrendous crimes we've had shootings and stabbings blah 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 but this hit differently and yeah i i guess it just depends on the crime it depends on the the detective but I can totally understand how this must be horrendous. And if he's been in the force 25 years, he could have been sort of mid to late 40s. He may have had a daughter himself who was of a similar age. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. True. So I do, I, I feel for all involved, but that's, that's how terrible this is. We've got a seasoned officer who is saying it's the saddest crime scene he's ever come across. And I just wanted to really hammer home this to provide a bit of context, really, in regards to what we'll come on to shortly, which is the behaviour of Amanda and Raphael in the immediate aftermath of, of this horrific murder. The news of Meredith's tragic death spread like wildfire throughout Perugia, not least because of the murderously barbaric circumstances of this crime. One Perugia resident and student at the same university as Meredith told the media, I didn't want to believe it because Perugia is such a small place. Nearly all the students know each other. It was almost as if it had happened in my own home, which I thought a tad dramatic of her, but I get the point. Yeah, I think it is a bit over the top, but at the same time, you're going to be over the top because this is quite major. And if you think about um, like where you went to school or uni and stuff like that, you can understand that something happening to one yeah. student does hit everybody quite hard. Yeah, because immediately you're going to place yourself in their shoes and think, this could yeah. have been me. So for all that the students knew at this point, there was a serial killer on the loose, so... Um, so yeah. yeah, it would have been uh, a truly shocking event for everybody in Perugia, particularly uh, the student population. 
So Meredith's grief-stricken family flew out to Perugia. Her older sister Stephanie Kircher told the media she was looking forward to coming home this weekend for our mother's birthday. We feel it's no exaggeration to say that Meredith touched the lives of everyone she met with her infectious, upbeat personality, smile and sense of humour. Giuliano Mignini and his team worked thoroughly and rigorously to preserve the integrity of the scene and to ensure that everyone was doing everything correctly. Referring to Meredith's body, Giuliano expressed to his colleagues right from the outset that the killer may be female. This was primarily because Meredith's body had been covered over by a duvet. Giuliano theorised that this final act of dignified mercy towards a murder victim was, in his experience, a character trait usually attributed to female murderers. It's so interesting. I know he's got a 25-year career, but he's really knowledgeable as well um, in something that is very unusual female murderers and especially serial killers and and in general female criminals it's so much more rare so for him to have that initial gut feeling and knowledge is I think fair play to him he's really a really good at his job isn't he yeah I think the only other theory I've heard around uh, a victim a murder victim being covered after their murder sometimes it's because they're they're intimately known to somebody, yeah. to, to the murderer. Yeah, definitely, so, like a parent yeah. or a child or a but, spouse or something. But I would say you can kind of count that out in this situation because she's in a foreign country. She doesn't really know anyone. Yes, she knows Amanda mm-hmm. and they've hit it off. But you've got to remember at this point, they've known each other for days, really. So um, just on the point of being covered, uh, male rapists and murderers, Giuliano said, do not often think about such things and usually leave their victims completely exposed or in whichever state they were in when they're finished with them, or sometimes they will yeah. pose them. Um, I'm not sure if they will pose, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I mean, maybe there's a, a, an element of posing with uh, Meredith's breasts being exposed and the T-shirt being pulled up, but that could have just been how she was kind of left, and she was covered. So this detail did bug uh, Giuliano. However, his attention was also being drawn to some peculiar goings-on outside of the apartment at this time. He was becoming increasingly bothered by Amanda and Raphael's behaviour at the crime scene in the immediate aftermath of the discovery of Meredith's body. According to eyewitnesses, Amanda and Raphael's conduct was a million miles away from what you would expect under such horrific circumstances. And I know we often say there's no normal way to behave in these circumstances, but, well, there is really, isn't there? You know, what we're going to come on to It's such a tricky one, isn't it? Because when it's someone you're really close to, I have a lot more sympathy for someone behaving in what we would see as a ridiculous way. Because they're in shock, maybe, like major shock. Yeah, Yeah. because they're in shock. And I just think a normal human being, when somebody is murdered, even if you don't know them or you don't know them very well, you have a bit of respect for the situation and the gravity of the situation. Um, And yeah, like when we talk about people who've had odd reactions or, you know, like laughing at serious situations or jumping around and being crazy and silly you can understand it because like you said they're in shock they're not responding correctly but yeah with these two you just kind of think like give it 10 minutes guys can you just stand quietly get a room basically (laughs) well get a room yeah because we've all seen the media footage of Raphael and Amanda outside the building where Meredith's body has been found and how they behave. So I'll go on to describe it, but it will probably pique that memory in your mind of, of seeing this on the news because it was widely 
um, reported. So as the crime scene was being assembled, the pair were observed intimately kissing, caressing and canoodling and basically acting in a very inappropriate manner given the highly distressing nature of the situation. And I know you're the same as me, Mark, and when we were at work, I don't really think it's appropriate in public anyway. I don't like a PDA. No, I we don't. We used to see people, we'd be sat at work and we'd look out of that massive window at the front and you'd see people basically dry humping on a bench. Yeah. And I don't want to see that. No, no one wants to Not see Not appropriate it. at the best of times, let alone when someone's been fucking brutally murdered. Yeah. Oh, it just, yeah. Yeah, it's weird, but... um. But yeah, I suppose some people do naturally behave like that. That's okay, I suppose. But I think in this situation, it's highly inappropriate. So a local journalist who arrived at the scene early on caught the intimate exchange on camera. That's the footage that we're all quite familiar with. And it was um, that footage was promptly shared far and wide and um, shown on multiple news platforms around the world. Giuliano ordered his officers to keep a quiet eye on Amanda and Raphael, especially Amanda, and report back to him with any significant observations of the couple's actions or movements. Indeed, their odd and unexpected behaviour in the days that followed only served to increase the growing suspicion that was silently mounting on the pair. CCTV from a nearby clothing store reportedly showed them buying erotic lingerie, think crotchless panties, Bethan, and discussing uh, don't say panties <laughs> crotchless is fine though and dis- and discussing <laughs> yeah. wild sex barely 24 hours after meredith's death um so yeah they've been pi- Do you know what though i don't have so much of an issue with that because they've it's the outside the crime scene that i have a real issue with they didn't know meredith really really true, well she's true. not really close to them and they've gone to a shop and that is between the two of them so whilst it isn't I don't think I'm going to have that on my mind if I know somebody and I've been in the house where somebody's just been found murdered and you don't know whether or not they kind of, whether it was just the officers who saw the scene or what they even saw, they might have seen blood and stuff. Mm. So you'd think that they wouldn't be, but that doesn't bother me as much as outside the apartment. Yeah. I think what we're dealing with here is a peculiar person in Amanda, whether she's a murderer Mm. or not. You can't deny the fact that she is a unique individual. So um, she is behaving in an unusual way because she's an unusual character. Um, But it's trying to marry that up with the evidence that presents itself. Later on, Amanda was brought to the crime scene by police to identify knives that were in the cutlery drawer. The detectives were searching for the murder weapon and wanted to eliminate the cooking knives in the property one by one until they found one that matched the wound in Meredith's neck. When the drawer was opened, it said that Amanda began to behave in a very peculiar way. She began to shake nervously and covered her ears with her hands as if trying to block out some imagined sound. And such behaviour is often seen in PTSD patients or individuals who have recently experienced some kind of extreme stress or trauma. And I don't think, so if Amanda's innocent, I don't think this is extreme stress or trauma to her, the fact that Meredith's been found dead, because we see her behaviour. But if she'd been involved in the murder, that would have been, of course, really traumatic. A few days after the murder, friends and fellow students held a candlelit vigil for Meredith at the university. Hundreds attended, but Amanda and Raphael did not. They went to have dinner and drinks at a friend's place instead. This questionable decision not to go raised further eyebrows and set the wheels of speculation firmly in motion. Oh, yeah, that's just, I don't like that they didn't even go to that. No, no, again, it's just one of those, like the visit to the sex shop, to buy erotic underwear and talking about wild sex. It's just weird and inappropriate. 
And I wanted to just spend a moment now, we've, we've done it a little bit, but just to talk a little bit about Amanda, because I think it's safe to say that we all know an Amanda, or we have known an Amanda. I don't mean someone named Amanda, I mean someone with similar character traits. And to be fair, they, they're usually innocent, aren't they? They're not um, capable or responsible for committing heinous crimes. They are just like you and me, but they have these extreme character traits and they can be great fun to be around, but they can also be people that are, I don't know, sort of exhausting to be around as well. And I think that's Amanda, isn't it? Yeah, because I'm in, I'm immediately thinking of the person who I had said to you was my best friend when we were very small and she'd come into our work and she is just all over the place. She started doing glamour modelling. She'd go on all these exotic holidays on her own. Never wore a bra, which is always bouncing those boobies around. You know, like just very, very fun. Yeah. Very energetic uh, and genuinely such a nice person such a family orientated person such a really lovely person but oh my goodness like if I had to spend more than half an hour with her I think I'd need a nap the growing suspicion on Amanda and Raphael finally came to a head on the 5th of November in 2007, just a few days after the murder, when Raphael was called in as a witness for questioning. Amanda went along with him voluntarily and once again her behaviour struck the police as extremely odd. As she waited for her boyfriend in the waiting room, she randomly got up and began practising a yoga routine and she was also observed doing cartwheels at this point. <laughs> of course she did. It's just weird. There's no need for that. That sort of behaviour trait really annoys me in people when you're sort of chatting to someone, you're not paying them any attention and all of a sudden they start uh, doing some fucking downward dog or something so that you just look at them. I'm like, fuck off. I just refuse to look at them. I would say, yeah, you would, wouldn't you? Yeah. Do we know that there were other people in the waiting room or was she on her own in a waiting room? Because if she was on her own in a waiting room, whilst it's not something you or I would do, use your time wisely. I want maybe. to, I want to Get think. Get your exercise in. I, I, I'm sure there would have been people there. I want to think that there would be, but I, I, I'm sure there would have been. Of course there would have been. There'd have been people coming I'm in and out. I'm just playing devil's advocate here, really, aren't I? But I just yeah. think if it's an empty room, yeah, fair it's enough. Not the worst thing because that it she could, could have it done. could be a coping mechanism of dealing with. This devastating news, doing cartwheels, could be a coping mechanism. Mm. (laughs) I'm not so sure, yeah. Um, (laughs) Anyway, so by now the police, along with everyone else in Perugia, were already highly suspicious of Amanda and Raphael, and so they began to grill Raphael about their supposed alibis. According to Amanda, on the night of the murder, she'd spent the night at Raphael's apartment. They'd cooked, eaten dinner, watched a film, had intercourse, smoked marijuana, and then gone to sleep, waking at about 10 the following morning. Initially, there was no evidence to suggest that Amanda's alibi wasn't true. However, when the police spoke to Raphael, his story began to change somewhat. In a clear contradiction to what Amanda had told them, Raphael stated that he couldn't be sure if Amanda had spent the entire night with him because he was high on marijuana and he was asleep. And I think that's kind of fair, isn't it? If you're asleep, you can't say... Being a bit high on weed... Well, that's not fair. No, that's not a good excuse. You're not off your face on crystal meth. Come on. Yeah, you're not on meth. But it is a valid point. Like, when people give their spouse an alibi saying, well, they were with me all night you're going to be asleep at some point and you're not going to know for definite. So that's a, a valid yeah. point. Do you remember, did you watch the first series of Broadchurch? 
Yeah. Because, um, I mean, this won't Loved be a spoiler that. because it was on nearly 10 years ago. Oh, my God. Yeah, but that was the, a while ago. the murderer was the husband of the police officer and mm-hmm. they'd got back from a holiday. She'd taken a sleeping pill. They'd gone to bed and therefore and woke up in the morning all normal. And therefore he had an alibi because she's like, yeah, we'd come back from holiday. He was in bed. And then it later transpires that she'd taken a sleeping pill and was completely zonked. Mm-hmm. And he was able to kind of get up in the night, go out and murder this child. So um, so I don't think that ever is an alibi. So I think that's fair of him to, to say. I, I wouldn't necessarily jump all over that, that he's saying, well, she was here and I can't be 100% certain because we were asleep, but she was here. But the police did sense blood and they upped their pressure on Raphael and their interrogation became more prolonged and more aggressive of him. Eventually, he broke down and admitted that Amanda hadn't actually been with him that entire night and had, in fact, only arrived at his apartment at 1am. 1 1 so this is very different. Oh, see, that is a big yeah. difference. And this is also a change in story and it contradicts what Amanda has initially told officers. Of course, this inconsistency really bothered Giuliano, who ordered that the officers go and interrupt the yoga-practicing moron in their waiting room and bring her in for questioning. (laughs) Detectives began the questioning of Amanda in a very informal manner, but as more minor inconsistencies became apparent, they gradually began to put additional pressure on her in order to reveal where she had really been that night. They asked to look at her text messages and she voluntarily handed over a phone. There, the police discovered what they decided was a rather unusual text message exchange between her and her boss, Patrick Lumumba, in which he had messaged her to say that it was going to be a quiet night at the bar and there was no need for her to come in and work that night. So Amanda had simply replied to him with, Si, vediamo più tardi, buono serata beautiful Italian accent I've got there and that loosely translates to I'll see you later good night and this exchange was perceived as odd for two reasons firstly it appeared to be an unusual way to reply to someone who had literally just said that there was no plan to see her that night and Italians don't use the idiom of see you later like a lot of us do um, as a kind of casual means of saying goodbye. So they took the message in its literal sense that she had an appointment to see him. Um, as such, to the police, it indicated strongly that Amanda had a secret plan to leave the house and see Patrick Lumumba at some point, which was in direct contradiction to Amanda's claims that she'd never left Raphael's place. And also she wasn't there all night anyway. I don't know. I, do, I find that a bit difficult, though, because fair enough, Italians don't have that. But he didn't say it to her. And actually, he I, I think he wasn't Italian anyway, was he? No. Yes. Um, yes. And I no. feel like he said he Congolese was from Italian. Africa. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, oh, so maybe he was Italian, but it, even either way, he wasn't the one who said that. She was the one who said it. And fair enough, she should, by this point, having studied and lived in Italy, like know a lot, but you'd still kind of use some of your back home yeah, phrases, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, I think so, so. I don't think that that means that she literally, like, I'll see you later. Good night. Yeah. Unless you've got proof that they, she's, yeah, that seems very very quick to kind of put two and two together and get a million. A million, wow. At this early stage of the investigation, Amanda was classified as a witness and not a suspect. Therefore, she had no legal representation. Undeterred by such a formality, the detectives went full throttle on Amanda and subjected her to hours upon hours of relentless interrogation. Nothing was held back and they put it to her straight that she was the killer and that she was attempting to conceal what she had done. And Amanda became highly distressed and repeatedly denied any wrongdoing, but the police only doubled down and added further pressure. 
I do feel for her at this point, if this is true. So according to Amanda, they screamed at her, yelled obscenities, reduced her to tears and even slapped her around the head and demanded she remember where she was and what she'd been doing that night. And then around... And if that is true, that is horrific, Absolutely. And we have seen forced confessions numerous times on this show and just in general. Yeah. And even just the relentlessness of being questioned for hours and hours and hours can cause a false confession and yeah i don't know it's it's terrifying isn't it yeah. really but if that is true that's really really sad what happened and in a foreign country as well and she's she's young she's 20 so yeah i, I do get it at around 1 a.m several hours after she'd set foot in that police station with her boyfriend voluntarily an emotionally exhausted amanda broke down and made a full confession She told police that she did indeed leave Raphael's apartment late that night before going to meet her boss, Patrick Lumumba. According to Amanda, Lumumba was physically attracted to Meredith and wanted to sleep with her and asked Amanda to facilitate a meeting between them. Amanda had agreed to take Lumumba home and lead him to Meredith's room so he could get acquainted with her. Not long after, Amanda heard loud screams coming from Meredith's room, followed by what sounded like a desperate struggle for life. Instead of intervening, however, she sat terrified on the kitchen floor and covered her ears. The police accepted this confession as a true account of what happened. Patrick Lumumba was arrested on suspicion of murder, and Amanda Knox and Raphael Solicito were made official suspects. And that is the end of part one. It's such a good point to pause. I, I wanted an abrupt just... ending. Yeah, very abrupt. Yeah, just like me. Yeah, this is um, it's all going to kick off, isn't it, Bethan? And we'll uh, hand over the reins to you for tomorrow's second part, which is going to get into the nitty gritty of this, isn't it? We'll join you tomorrow, guys. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye.